welcome everybody and join us in a meander into our mystery musings this monday as we amass more material on our mimic murder more minutes immersed in the mummery with her roommates means cassie might make a mistake and miss out on unmasking the murderous miscreant and joining me in this uh, murderous mystery are spencer and sarah as per usual welcome mightily amused bj marvelously done Thank you, thank you. I aim to uh, to please. Um, so this uh, time we're again doing this a little bit differently than a lot of our other books. And uh, I did mention I said that this was a mystery, and it really isn't. It's more of a thriller. But um, especially in the second chunk of the book, there's not a lot that goes on. It's more character interactions. So we're going to spend more time with the character interactions, what's going on, um, rather than really a play-by-play. I think there are a couple of like main scenes that we might want to touch on, but like a lot of this is just going to be how Cassie as Lexi is interacting with uh, the, her four housemates, uh, Rafe, Abby, Justin, and Daniel. And just in case um, you have dropped your phone and landed here without knowing what's going on, oh, we you. are discussing The Likeness by Tana French. Um, <laughs> just in case. I usually mm-hmm. do title the episodes reasonably well, so hopefully like it's not a complete mystery as to you know what we're getting, but, but thank you. <laughs> I do enjoy those poor wayward souls that find us by accident and just start listening without the slightest clue of what they've gotten into. It's like living in a Shel Silverstein poem. Yeah, I mean, I do my best with the CEO or SEO stuff, but I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, Beach, well, I think a good point to start off is you've said before a few times that this does not, in your view, accurately fall into the category of mystery, but it's more accurately defined as a thriller. Yeah. I mean, there is certainly a mystery underlining this. So, how do you how do you yeah, mean it? So, um, can I pause for a second? Can we start with my cocktail, please? Yeah. Oh, oh we forgot the drinks. <laughs> we have to do the we have to do the drinks. Yeah. I'm, what do yeah, we got? Three fingers into the, my rye. So. Um, <laughs> well, I'm two of these in now. So. Two more. <laughs> um, so I I am not sure if we are actually going to get there tonight. Um, but at some point in this narrative, there is a like pretty disastrous. Um, drunken evening at the house at Whitethorn Hall mm-hmm. um, where they are drinking what is described by Abby um, in a quote. She says, we're being decadent. Rafe and Justin made this punch stuff with cognac and rum, and I don't know what else is in it, but it's lethal, and nobody has tutorials or anything tomorrow, so fuck it. We're not going into college. We're staying up drinking and making idgits of ourselves till we all fall over. Sound good? Um, so I've made the rum punch. And it's made out of brandy oh, and out of cognac and rum. Um, and it is lethal. Sarah, you do have to work tomorrow. What have you done? <laughs> um, well, I might not be working tomorrow. So <laughs> anyway, I made it. I thought I was going to hate it. Right? Yeah, it's being pushed back by the minute. Um, I thought I was going to hate it because I don't like rum and I don't like cognac. Um, but this is rum and cognac with steeped tea, um, Hmm. muddled sugar and lemon peels, and a whole bunch of lemon juice, and it's very good. So that's what I'm drinking, and I should probably have this one more. That does sound entertaining. I almost uh, (laughs) made a cocktail that I was going to call something, and then I decided that I'd rather drink some rye. Um, (laughs) And it would have been some basil vodka and with uh, watermelon ice cubes and soda. Oh, wow felt like would have been nice and summery but um but the rye is is looking at me and, and asking me to drink it. so i am <laughs> well i mm. thought the only other 
um, real cocktail that seems appropriate and is actually mentioned is a gin and tonic, which I do love a mm. gin and tonic, but it did not seem festive enough if yes. one is supposed to be making cocktails. Yeah, it doesn't seem, it doesn't some seem sort of like book appropriate. It just bit. sort of seems yeah. like, oh, it's a gin and tonic. <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, so back to uh, the mystery versus thriller. So um, I actually think it was it was Isaac Asimov that talked about this in some of his notes on uh, some mysteries that he had written or, or just in, to talking about books in general, is that um, a lot of mystery writers uh, present fair mysteries. And so the readers get the same clues that the person solving the mystery gets. And so if you are able to read the right clues and kind of puzzle it together, you can solve the mystery. Um, there are ones that are a little bit more like it or not. Um, I would say that sort of the many of the famous ones are not. Um, I would say that a lot of the Conan Doyle mysteries, uh, the Sherlock mysteries, just they're more fun stories than actual mysteries. Um, whereas mm-hmm. sort of the Agatha Christie's that you mentioned or um, the maybe, well, I was about to say Poirot, which doesn't really count. Um, <laughs> the the Earl Stanley Gardner, there, there are a bunch of other mystery writers that really do present more mysteries where there is a puzzle to be solved. The characters do solve it, but the option to, as a reader, to try and figure out what's going on is there. And that really isn't the case for this book, which um, frustrated me a little bit on the first read through, but not really because I was just sitting and enjoying the book and and really just enjoying the what we're going to get into in this episode is the character interaction. But on Mm -hmm. the second read through, um, one of the characters and one of the ways that we are splitting the end of this book is when we find out who um, the uh, N is in, in Lexi's journal, which is sort of the first part of um, what goes on in this section. Um, we don't actually find out anybody that's a, the the name that's associated with N earlier on that we could figure it out. And I feel like that's a problem both with the book being a mystery, which is if it's not a mystery and it's a thriller, that's fine. But also in terms of how the police work happens, that that's like a glaring error. Um, and so there are a couple of others that, that, you know, sort of waft in and out where, um, had this been a mystery, there are pieces of information that I feel like could have been sprinkled out that would have made it a mystery as opposed to maybe a thriller or dramatic thriller or something like that, where you're more just taken along for the ride and there isn't something for the reader themselves to solve. A practical question I have to ask about this, because I agree that, uh, the, the, Almost the only hints we get to the ultimate resolution of all these mysteries are given really early on in her time in the home based on her initial interactions with the character, which in retrospect we can look back and say, oh, okay, that was a mild hint. But are we hamstrung by the fact that our sole source of information, our investigator who's giving us and uncovering these clues, by about halfway through this book, no longer really necessarily wants to solve the mystery? Is this an intentional effort on the part of the writer that she's making this much more of a a character drama and character analysis based on the fact that her lead investigator isn't investigating? So so I was going to bother you. Are are we giving her that (laughs) credit? Well, I was going to say, when you say the writer, but like you did clear that up because this book is written as a memoir. It is, very much so. Or at least the, the first couple of paragraphs go that way and you know, there are blips every so often where Cassie breaks the present tense telling of the story and mm-hmm. sort of throws a little bit in which i 
I'm not sure how I feel about. Like, I feel like sometimes it, like, doesn't hit. And I think the first time I read it, I just powered through it and didn't notice it as much. Um, Because I feel like if this were true to that narrative, then there would be little tidbits of information about, like, maybe what other people were thinking or something like that as she recalls these events. I mean, we actually talked on... or was the the weekend uh, episode this past weekend about memory and how it works and having like commentary on a very crystal clear memory just like isn't how anything should work in this mm-hmm. uh, in Cassie's retelling of something that happened. And you know I think and we didn't talk about this a lot in the last episode, but kind of in some of those kind of pull out moments where particularly at the very beginning of the novel where you get these kind of, I don't know, almost like lyrical meditations on what the doubleness means and what the kind of mixed identity and what does it mean to be living somebody else's life. Those seemed very out of place to me in terms of what is happening in the rest of the rest of the novel. When Cassie herself is kind of in the moment reflecting on how weird things are, I buy those a little bit more, but those kind of like pull out moments of like let me tell you what it means in a metaphysical sense um to be in this experience like i don't know those just didn't work for me yeah i I feel like i agree the the things that she says like kind of in retrospect and the way that she talks about the character interactions um if this is something that she recalls it's weirdly written but I feel like there was sort of like a, a, a weird balance that Town of French was going for to have a, you know, almost broken fourth wall by the narrator narrating this in, from the future and mm-hmm. not quite committing to it. And mm-hmm. again, I think that this is a book and there are quite a number of them that suffer on a reread because of you, you take the time and you realize and then ana- analyze Whereas on my first read through, I just, I breezed through it because the prose was fun, the story was fun, and I didn't think about any of these sort of more nuanced pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, her whole interaction and memory of Sam is just the weirdest thing. Um, That's a really uncomfortable relationship and interaction. Right. And especially... At every point. You know, I guess there there are two ways that this could go. They... uh, I. I feel like this isn't a spoiler, even though it's like the last thing that happens is they get engaged at the end. Yeah. And it, yeah, that, Sarah, you, you mm-hmm. said, Sarah, you said you were going to return to that point to explain your perspective on it uh, once we got yeah, there. Yeah. So maybe let's hold off till the next episode to, to yeah. get more of the perspective. But so either they get married or, or they either stay married and, and it's fine or they break up and neither of those two uh, endings fits with how... Cassie talks about her boyfriend to fiance and their interaction Mm -hmm. and either in recollection or anything else unless you have essentially an omniscient third person narrator that does everything but her like vague commentary every so often which again I feel like is Tana French not committing to her bit. It's an interesting structure I mean it's almost like it's almost like she's retrospectively listening to the tapes and then offering commentary on them of like the tapes of her being undercover. Because as you guys said, it's a perfectly accurate, precise memory recall uh, in terms of the details of events down to the letter. 
And then there's these interludes of where it's now the fuzzy, dreamlike experience of memory and the emotional connection. And how those two blend does not appear to work unless it's two separate sources of this information that we're hearing. But that's never never really explained. It's a it's a forced perspective that suffers in the sense that it just doesn't they don't necessarily square well together. Yeah, actually that's a that's a really good that's a really interesting kind of framing possibility that you've brought up, Spencer, this idea that, well, maybe she's actually just listening to her own tapes again and kind of going through that. And that's that's the scenario we're in, in kind of the frame narrative. Um, mm-hmm. But we never get that concrete answer. And, I, you know, I don't need like a specific answer of like, I am going into my room right now to listen to these tapes that I have confiscated from or whatever. But like some gesture towards that being what is actually going on would be really helpful in concretizing kind of what we're supposed to be doing with these disparate voices. And if that's what the author's doing, it works to a certain degree, because once we get to these middle chapters where she's on tape, these are the chapters that are the most almost excessive in their detail, the glorying of the detail, the interactions of the characters, down to each line of dialogue. It's incredibly precise. It's incredibly photorealistic kind of memory depiction if she's just describing this from what her memory of the events are. Whereas the inter- the both the intro and exit chapters are much more circumspect. They're much more broad brush, jumping over the details, describing key events, something that would seem more authentic for memory. So this kind of framing could work if that's what she's doing, but without her saying that's what it is, it's my interpretation and it could just well be made up. It could just be trying to pull together not perfectly interlinked threads. So the other thing that I feel like makes sense, but still lacks, you know, the full explanation is, you know, if you're if there's a story that you want to tell um, or Mm -hmm. uh, a specific memory that you want to relate, the lead in and lead out are vaguely important, but to a sense, to a certain sense, they're not. Um, Mm -hmm. And I can refer to uh, the, the uh, new year's episodes. I I believe it was on the weekend where we tell the quote unquote greatest story ever told and the lead into them and the lead out of them for for me and and I feel like for you as well are hazy and not very important even though there are there could have been especially for me very important things um because mm-hmm. I was on a trip with the girl that I was dating at the time who if we had a continued relationship might have been a more meaningful part of our relationship and so mm-hmm. Like that would have been a little bit more of a focus, other than a an amusing aside, because there's absolutely no reason for me to be there at that point in time, otherwise. Um, and so the like how that came about is a part that I would rush and kind of gloss over if I were telling you know the main story of uh, the insanity that that is uh, York Mike, but. Um, but again, so so like without that story that, that she wants to tell, which is this interaction, like I can sort of see the immersion and denouement being kind of like thrown together because they don't matter. What matters is the relationships and the interactions and the people that and the, and the house, house and, the, and where she felt at home. Yeah. So kind of we we where we left off last time, we are right at the entrance to Whitethorn Hall, yes. right? Um, which is where we are really picking up plot-wise, even though we're not really talking about plot all that much. But I think, as Spencer, you alluded to, like these first moments 
um, of her entering this house end up being super important. Um, and they read as really important, although you don't really know why mm-hmm. in well, the moment. You kind of do know that, like, there's a reason that they're important in the moment, and then there's a reason that they're also important on retros. Because in the moment, it's these first moments that really solidify as to whether she can functionally be, you know, an undercover, like, detective and detect and actually, like, hold this cover or not. Because, you know, this is, you know, the first test. And then the second test is if she can, like, live there for a little bit longer. But if her first meeting just doesn't ring true, the story yeah. dies. Yeah, no, I guess what I mean is that there, there is a weirdness and a tension that is described in that first meeting that does not necessarily track with why there would be weirdness and tension. Like, it just feel all of it feels a little off. Now it breaks, and she, like, it works. Um, but the weirdness that is described there is, is just different, I think. That it's not... Um, I, I don't know what it is, but, like, I think it's the weirdness she feels about, like, who these people are. Right. And from their perspective, as we learn later, the weirdness of people who, from the last time they saw this woman, they saw or heard her dead. Uh, after one of them stabbed her in the gut, she ran <laughs> off into the darkness. It, it would be a real... I'm trying to, I'm trying to t- imagine what would be the emotion... What, how those guys would go into that scene of, okay... We're all involved in a conspiracy to murder. Our victim is returning home, and we have no perspective on what she knows, remembers, or has told the police. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. But, Sarah, I do need to ask, as we're getting into this, um, depiction of the life of a series of English graduate students living in the Irish countryside. Do all, as our resident English graduate student, do all English graduate students live in some kind of fluffy, duffy, dis- uh, Dickensian world of charm like the ones described in this tale? Yes. <laughs> okay, I, I, that was the way I hoped it was going to be. That's the way I've always imagined it. I'm glad I got an authentic depiction. Yes, it's all cocktails and herb gardens and cards at night and taking turns. Nonstop Mozart. Yeah, nonstop. <laughs> Piano has to be there. And the the every once in a while just desultory parties that happen. Um, oh, and then every once in a while you go into college and like I don't really understand like i they're describing them as sort of postgrads which i think are grad students kind of in the u.s but like what they really seem to i mean i guess they have teaching responsibilities um but i was a little offended at the idea that cassie could just walk in and sort of a live this life b sort of like make gestures towards progressing on lexi's dissertation um that was Mm -hmm. a little uncomfortable and then also eventually she does end up going... Does she end up actually teaching at all? Yep. Yeah. She does. Yeah. Because for a while, um, her housemates are kind of covering yeah. her, her sections for her. Um, but she ends up going back to teach. <laughs> okay. There was six years of my life. Thanks. So... Uh, I love how... F- I was going to say, I feel like English is, is different. Because, first of all, they're undergrads that TA classes um, in the sciences. Um, and I feel like I could have taken over some PowerPoints for some of my friends, like anatomy lectures, um, Mm -hmm. and just been like, Hey, like I can step in and be fine. Um, yeah, there are probably some questions that, that I can't answer, but to just give a lecture and just make sure nobody cheats on, uh, like a little lab practical, eh, I can probably do that. (laughs) Um, 
But, I mean, so the other side of it, I will say, is I feel like it also is really dependent on the level, of course. Yeah, and like that's true. how much knowledge that you have, because I feel like I could coach you or Spencer to do, like, a journal club where mm-hmm. you just get, like, and Sarah particularly, you because you could just get people to talk and just, like, yeah. well, you know, what do you think is, you know, behind this figure? Like, what what's the intent of the information yeah. that they're trying to get across? <laughs> and they would... Just straight Socratic. Yeah, well, basically. And well, so... Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I mean, like, I 100% agree with you, Sarah, that, that it is kind of just, like, really? But also... <laughs> no, it's actually, it's interesting because, like, BJ, I think, I think what you are saying about kind of, like, if you as an, as an undergrad, perhaps, were going to step in and kind of lecture and um, give slides and, and, you know, whatever it is, that, like, you could do that if it were a lower-level Mm-hmm. science course is that fair so it, there is an kind of an inverse relationship in english it would be much more difficult to step in and try to fake your way through um a a lower level english course than it would an upper level english course um because like to be doing the lectures and kind of the information dissemination of the lower level english course is very different from the sort of like self dis- self-directed free-flowing discussion of um an upper level english course so like I think that if the if these are like relatively far along in their career, undergraduate career classes, um, you know, Cassie's probably fine. You just have to go in and, as you say, like guide people to filling the space for an hour and a half. Yeah. And I was going to say, like, it kind of reminds me of, um, so I did two years at Rutgers and I basically refused to take to not take honors English because I tested into it essentially. Mm-hmm. And honors English was basically just like discussions that the professor vaguely led and then like a couple of papers. But like a lot mm-hmm. of it was just like we read something and then we talked about it in class. And so I feel like, yes, it would be hard, like the the getting the personality down right. But I, I know that there are TAs that I've remembered like, week to week but i could also see just like somebody else stepping in me being like ah whatever like i don't care (laughs) so and it also seems like cassie was already always going to be kind of slated to get out of this situation before like in a in a set amount of time Mm -hmm. um and so like she was probably going to get out of there before she would actually have to grade anything um so like i feel like that was a (laughs) a major sort of factor in her pulling this off well and, and another story from from my life that then and I hopefully this will be the last one for the episode is <laughs> I tried to convince my friends to let me get their practicals and they're just like no you're too mean so <laughs> hmm. well one of the main things we see in terms of these middle chapters is um, Cassie just getting thoroughly enamored with the uh, interactions of this particular kind of uh, self-created family unit and also the world of the house that they've built around themselves. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think that she finds so particularly intoxicating about this? Because by the end of this middle part section, she is so thoroughly committed to it that she's finding ways to remain there longer. She's finding excuses that she can actually make this her work. Okay, so what drew her? I in? feel like we should like talk about a couple of plot points that that lead us to this before we just jump into it. Uh, no, no? no. Okay. go ahead, sure. <laughs> Um, BJ, what, what plot points do you want to talk about? Okay, so so very quickly, like this is one of the first things that happens is um, she after she has this first meeting with um, the 
the the people in the house her her housemates um the next morning they have breakfast they all leave to go uh go to college and see she searches like high and low to find uh the diary that lexi kept and finds it Mm -hmm. and pages through it finds the you know finds a bunch of like uh grocery lists then finds a series of meetings with n um and this is sort of where i got very frustrated because we we like having read through it a second time you know who n is but they're never referred to as n and this is where the sloppy police work comes in is there's no way that you just refer to somebody as their nickname like when you're going over their details at least in my mind i have no idea what actual anyway but she doesn't share this information with her boyfriend who's also the lead investigator or the person that's running her undercover Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this is very early on too yeah. this is like within 20 30 pages of her being in exactly this house. Yeah. she's our- that's what i was saying you know that's why i kind of wanted to say you know super early on this is one of the big things that she's just like oh i can't talk about it because i want to keep doing this and it's just like what that that makes absolutely no sense like why why would they pull her out like why like anyway well and it's the kind of major that is the kind of major decision point so early on that really pushes her decision making going forward in the situation right because everything starts to revolve around at least everything in terms of how she is dealing with sam and frank starts Mm -hmm. to revolve around the fact that she has to keep quiet the original sin of not telling them about the diary it rapidly has a butterfly effect there's so many moments of where things in the diary are immediately becoming relevant based on what she ne- where she needs to direct things and move them. But because she can't reveal it, she's con- having to continue and expand upon the lie. Well, she basically never technically lies, but I know, Spencer, you take great umbrage with this um, because there are lies, many lies of omission and many mm-hmm. intentional misdirections that she does, but... Well, she, she's effectively ruining a criminal investigation by not revealing the base source of information and decision-making. That she needs to reveal each step of the information she acquires, where it goes and how it's preserved. Otherwise, well, I, I don't think for Ireland anything's going to be admissible of this, but at least the American system, she has to constantly maintain a chain of evidence in terms of where information comes from and why she leads them in direction. Otherwise, none of it's going to be admissible to a jury or none of it's going to be coherent. But... She's not really caring about that throughout all this, partly because Ireland's just different about how they about how, about their criminal procedure. Hashtag Lawnard but, <laughs> but why? Sorry, thank you. But uh, at the time, she says she's not she's not revealing this information because uh, she she wants to be true. She, she wants to be true to Cassie. She wants to do justice to sorry to Lexi. That seems to be her early motivation behind all this. Is that she's speaking for Lexi? That she wants to solve this crime for her. She wants to go about these steps necessary that she can do justice to her. Is that the impression you guys had? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, but I think that's a dirty lie. Oh, <laughs> certainly, yes. But it's at least, I think, early on something that she does believe herself. Um, I think it may, it, a certain element of, of it is personal to start just because this is a person who intruded in her life, who stole an aspect of her created identity, the uh, background narrative that she finally got to write for herself. Yep. But it quickly goes and it goes on and expands from there. She spends more time in the house. I was going to say, Sarah, I, sorry I cut you off. I heard a, a very long intake of breath like you were really getting ready to say something. <laughs> no, it's fine. I've exhaled my breath now. Yeah, but I want to know what you had to say. <laughs> um, I don't remember. <laughs> I think it's the punch. 
Don't worry, have a third. You won't care. It'll be fine. Well, uh, what, what next? What na- next major plot point did you have in mind, BJ? Before we get to my uh, overarching Socratic question, I guess like I'm I'm happy to address your overall Socratic question, but I feel like we should at least introduce some of the plot that led to that question, as opposed to just like sure. taking it for granted. Also, because it like happens so quickly and so directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It's a good point to emphasize. And I wasn't being sarcastic about it. which other ones did you have in mind to frame my question around. Um, trying to remember because I, I only got to like halfway as opposed to sixty or seventy percent on my reread. Um, <laughs> I mean, a, 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 the end of this is going to be we could do various moments in between, but the end of this is when she's hauled back in to base for a, a series of interviews between her and also the other people that inhabit the Whitethorn House. And it ends with uh, Frank basically proposing that now that they have a potential suspect, this uh, IRA kind of loyalist figure who has a grudge against the Whitethorn Manor and its family as a result of crimes in the distant past around about World War One, uh, he built this kind of theory that maybe he's participating in a smuggling of artifacts out of the house, which Cassie and Sam immediately go, well, that's just obviously bullshit. That, that There's no way that's almost even possible. Mm-hmm. And throughout this whole conversation, she's barely even participating. She's all, her, her thoughts are just being reserved for the idea of what's going on in that world, all the things she's looking forward to going back to. Mm-hmm. And in between each moment which she dissipates, that's where her head immediately goes, is thinking about all of these aspects of this life that she's adopted. And when they finally call her to the carpet to participate, her responses are, oh yeah, sure, whatever Frank wants. It's just very much, oh yeah, well that's, that's possible, just as a way of continuing the investigation. And it's by that point, about two-thirds of this novel, we've seen that she has fully abandoned the plot. She's fully abandoned any degree of duty or dedication to why she originally went in this home, and she's instead de- dedicated herself to anything possible to continue to invest in this life. Yeah. I think one of the things we should just gloss over, this is not like a plot point necessarily that we need to know, um, but I think some some kind of framing and logistics of how this all goes down that really kind of structure the morass of her just getting kind of lost in um, the romanticism of this house is that early on in their background research about about Lexi, they discover Frank and Frank and Cassie discover Frank discovers um, <laughs> that uh, that Lexi every night would almost every night would go out for a walk kind of on her own. And that mm. gives a sort of cover for Cassie to also go out. And that's when she checks in with Frank and occasionally um, increasingly occasionally calls Sam as well. Um, and so we get these interludes mm-hmm. of her kind of leaving the house in the dark on these country roads. Um, and I think this actually starts to get to some of your questions, Spencer, because we have these moments of her outside of the house and we have these moments of yeah. her alone. And we have these moments of her kind of making contact with her real life. Um, and those kind of pauses and breaks in the everyday of Whitethorn Hall are kind of the only sort of punctuating things that we get for a large part of this this yeah. book, right? And they're very much intrusion. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess... Increasingly begrudging on her yeah, part. And I, yeah, and I guess I also want to throw this in as a... Just a weird, like, the begrudging conversations that she has with the boyfriend that ends up proposing after she's done with this are just so pained and not important to her. She's so over them all the time. Yeah. And like, was there ever a moment? Yeah. Sorry. She just like forgets about like the, the first, uh, 
the first time or the second time where she like the the one of the first couple times that she goes out on her evening walk alone and she's just so caught up in like being freaked out or whatever that she just doesn't call sam and it's just like really you had an entire day to yourself you called mackie and then not not the lead investigator who is also your boyfriend and i don't know just just that and then um i also now that i'm thinking about it want to call attention to like her hiding up in a tree just being complete bullshit so um (laughs) it's dark um i know but isn't somebody gonna notice the voice coming out of the tree also, like, uh, have either of you climbed a tree, like, semi-recently as an adult, that, like, you actually climb up into the tree? No. Uh, there are certain trees that are a lot easier than others, so, like, a magnolia is just a piece of cake, but you know, most trees are kind of hard. Yeah, um, and, like, a tree that sounds like this, like, wouldn't be particularly easy, you kind of need both hands, like, there's just, like, all kinds of things that just, it's a great visual to have once she's up there, and it's glossed mm-hmm. over, but it's also just like this. No, I disagree. <laughs> I feel I feel like we keep cutting back to Sam and her relationship and how none of us buy it. I mean, it. I almost wonder whether if we'd read the first book, there'd be some greater expounding on how she feels about him and the important role in her life. Because most of what we get about why she likes him or why she values him is him serving as an emotional crutch to help her get through the past trauma of what happened in the first book, and. I get that, that's described and talked about, but it doesn't lead to any degree of warmth or just honest emotional feelings that we see in this text between her and him. It seems very much about, I appreciate that you helped me get through that moment, I value you as a good and supportive person, but there is never any element of warmth that's seemingly exchanged between them. Yeah, and I, th- I guess I, to me this is a another example, like what I was talking about, where I want to tell you about the interpersonal relationships that I had in this house, and nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Well, it, 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 it seems like it's feeding into just how, again, intoxicating this place is, that she has so little in the world to leave behind to disappear into this other pl- other much more warm, uh, warm place. That she's got a relationship that doesn't, she doesn't particularly seem to care about, a job that she views as dead end, and uh, not what she ever wanted out of her life, a series of mistakes that people still seem to judge her for, and it will be her reputation that she can't leave behind. And here is a fresh start with a family that she's never had before and a world that she can finally craft for her own. Yeah. I think you've answered your Socratic question, Spencer. Yeah, I was getting frustrated. <laughs> uh, what, do, what do y'all think? Is that an accurate summary? Is there um, anything to add to it? Um, I think, you know, this, this plays into kind of what you were talking about, but the thing that she really really focuses on and that really seems to hook her into this whole situation is yes the idea that they're sort of a family and that they're 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 close um but specifically the ease with which they live their everyday lives together and so she has these moments of description that that um that she's noticing as she's kind of like walking on eggshells trying to to fit in of you know, people handing, Abby handing Rafe cigarettes, I don't remember who it is, but Abby handing Rafe cigarettes before he even knew he wanted one, or taking drinks out of each other's cocktails, um, or the routine of the everyday. Like, those types of moments are really, I think, the most evocative when they are written about and when they strike Cassie as well. And those mm-hmm. seem to be the things mm-hmm. she really latches onto. It, it, I think it's a sense of comfort and yeah. mm-hmm. it's the when you're comfortable with people like the 
it's a different relationship and so um you know i guess i could try and pull from thin air and that's sort of why she likes sam because it's a comfort thing but it's this is very much a description of people that are really comfortable with each other and uh like spending time together and it's Mm -hmm. um i mean they're you mean unlike how she is with sam yeah yeah i mean she she even talks about for a character who is said very pointedly she doesn't like the idea of nostalgia. There's several times in the course when she's seeing these characters in Whitethorn interact, she immediately compares it in her mind to the relationship she used to have with Rob. Mm -hmm. About how imminently natural that was. About how joined at the hip they were. About how they felt people would describe them as just being simply one unit of a person. And how much she seemingly misses that and is seizing upon this as a a nostalgia memory of it. And also how pointedly different her relationship with Rob was as compared to the relationship she now has with Sam. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would also say that as a character, that probably kind of makes sense because the things that she's most nostalgic about are painful. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I feel like that's that's a little bit one note for a character. <laughs> They're painful in the sense that they've been lost rather than that they are actually painful memories. I mean, I feel like having four people hate you for this comfortable interaction that you had is not... Oh, you mean you mean with respect to this entire story, the nostalgia she has come to the end? Right. Well, presumably, gotcha. the nostalgia is her looking back on this and pop- mm-hmm. also so. her previous relationship with Rob, which uh, presumably ended terribly. And so, yeah. the, like, the main comfortable relationships that she's had throughout her life have ended badly other than maybe Sam. And so, the- like, her parents, then Rob, then Whitethorn. Well, you even consider her memory of these events, though. We never have her directly remember what went so horribly wrong with Rob. We'd, it's never specifically stated what that is. She's instead remembering the, the positive things of their relationship. When she thinks back about Whitethorn Manor and all the time here, the initial memory we have in the prologue is an empty house with nobody else in it. It's not the people that hate her. It's not the disaster that was their relationship. It's the feeling of the home that, that it embodied that is otherwise empty and devoid of the actual residence. Yeah. So she is, she, her memories that she's describing, she is distinctly doing them through rose-tinted glasses to avoid the pain of where they ultimately went wrong. Well, yeah, and I think I think she has to have this kind of re- revisionist history too because like in each of those points where it has gone wrong, like it is partially to completely uh, her, her fault her fault but also her misreading of of people in the situation right she wants so desperately Better. for Better. um this group of people at whitethorn to be what she sees through her rose tinted glasses um mm-hmm. and like that's that's obviously not the case that's obviously not the case from the beginning um from that very first interaction on the steps like something is wrong there but she refuses to see that um, and willfully refuses to see that. Does she have a certain degree of uh, commonality with her main characters, too, in terms of um, the residents of the house, in terms of the, their broken histories? Of where each of these characters is going in specifically with the uh, notion and the watchword of no past because they all come from some degrees of either broken or pained homes. Um, is it that common shared trait that she's also seizing upon, too, and how easily she's inter- able, to, able to interact with them? I mean, I think the obvious answer, yes, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily the main thing, though. Yeah. I think the main thing, as you guys said, is just she seizes on how they interact with each other rather than where they came from or mm-hmm. what they individually even are. Well, but um, I feel like there's two sides of that coin. Um, that Because 
I don't know how much history necessarily plays a role in uh, comfort with other people. And so, mm. like, the rule of no histories is a side piece to the the comfort of that relationship and interaction. And I think that it's a good dynamic for the story that Tana French wants to tell um, mm-hmm. because it fits in very well with the characters that she wants to write, the, the whole Lexi slash Maddox uh or lexi slash cassie uh not having a past also because you know she's dropped previous lives or as a detective that just like walks into a character you know as athena sprung from the head of zeus (laughs) but they're they're different sides of the coin i mean there are many friendships that that i have and have had where like there are parts to people's histories that either don't matter, don't come up, or anything else. And, you know, sometimes they sort of do eventually. And, and, you know, depending on what it is, it's either, like, talked about more interestingly or less. But the who people are now and who you, how you interact with them, they're, the past that has gotten them there is often much less important than who they are. And so... Mm-hmm. I think that that's an interesting thing for her to talk about and a good device, but like not intrinsic to the characters and the relationship that Cassie thoroughly enjoys and is wistful about. So we have talked a lot about kind of the people at Whitethorn Hall as like the, the group, essentially. We've talked yeah. about them all as the sort of like homogenous like, or like the, the one, one entity, right? Yes. Like, yeah. Um, so the family, unit. The family yes. unit. So are there things that we can say about these characters as individuals that you think are important or telling or anything like that? Yeah, I, I think that, that, you know, maybe we should go through each of the other characters in turn and talk a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm getting lazy and I feel like we should do it alphabetically. Um, so Abby, yeah, Abby. So Abby to start with, she's a rough one because I think she's the one that's almost least um, gone into in terms of her background or who she, what she represents. She's described as being kind of like the mother or sister figure, but what more do we get out of her um, in terms of the story? I feel like she's one of the ones that's least realized. I think that she's up until up until the bitter end. Yeah, I think that she's re- least realized, but has the. Um, like the broad strokes painted so you get a sense of the character that you can fill in rather than needing to be told um, because mm-hmm. we do get some specifics and generalities like she's short and small but she doesn't feel that way mm-hmm. you know she she has the personality and the the presence to make up for her her stature and her her uh, relative smallness she, she also seems to maintain almost like a lieutenancy to Daniel in terms of trying to keep this family unit together and enforce the rules that have been put upon them. For she seems like she's one of the ones that's most inclined to interrupt when they start to go off track into a topic that's otherwise going to be a minefield or going to be uncomfortable. She's the one yeah. that glances at uh, Cassie when it's her job to intervene to stop a conflict that she sees coming. I was going to say, I so, feel like uh, Sergeant, it may be a better appellation than Lieutenant. You know, just the, sure. like, you know, sort of taking care of a lot of the day-to-day and keeping people in line and sort of everything else that, you know, she's sort of the mother hen of the group kind of deal. 
And it's interesting because like she seems to be for a variety of reasons, she seems to be the person that um, Cassie as Lexi spends the most time with and the most one-on-one time Mm -hmm. with, but she is probably the least realized as, as you've been saying as a character. And to me, she sort of read because of that as this sort of like blank palette on or blank canvas on which Cassie could kind of paint all kinds of assumptions and um, pictures and kind of what she wanted out of like a mother sister figure, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That she could kind of use her, she became malleable in her characterization in ways that were useful to Cassie as she she tried to fit herself into this, into this family. Um, And so it's interesting to me that they spend the most time together and she's the one we know least about really. She's the closest thing she has to a secret keeper while she's in the Mm -hmm. house of where she's the one that has the conversation about what happened to the baby. Uh, interact, discussed with her about um, other characters, about what they want out of this. Um, so yeah, it, it's she has an interesting role, and I feel like in the by the end of the story, it's almost framed in that her main aspect of her character that proves relevant is just this very much dedicated loyalty to Daniel and his experiment, um, and a desire for it to keep going, be it out of personal love for Daniel or a belief that it was the best thing for all of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, going down the alphabet, um, then we have Daniel. <laughs> we do. Who's, who's another awkward number two, because he's the most actively mysterious of all of these four characters, who I don't think Possible we ever get a clear reasons. explanation. Yeah. Um, we do know that it is, like, actually... Well, he is the one he who is, has inherited this house, right? Right. And so this experiment is is his experiment. And he is also the one who sort of generals... Um, he If we keep... As they as they do in the book, keep the military. If we keep the military and the family metaphors going, he is both general and father of this household, right? And but mm-hmm. it is he is the one who has come up with and enforces these types of rules, like the no pass, um, and that is specifically mm-hmm. his project. Um, and it seems to be well, there are a variety of reasons why he is doing that, um, but that is the kind of like one unbreakable rule in this household. Um, so mm-hmm. he has the house, he makes the rules, um, what else can we say about him? Uh, he, well, it's a very interesting point they go into detail about, that he gives them the house too. Yes. That he makes them all, he makes them all co-owners of the house, which is something the characters themselves debate as to why he does, is why he did it. That he either did it as an act of, you know, generosity to make them all equal partners in this house, to make them all a, a shared future together. Or he did it as a way of tying them to his plan, making it something that they can't leave behind. They are literally invested in this as much as he is. Yeah. So I guess I feel like he is one of the few characters that I don't think is empathetic to everybody else. Like doesn't have the same emotional bond that some of the other characters have. Mm-hmm. Um and is searching for it and thinks he can get it this way, but like never, either never quite gets there or just isn't good at expressing it in the way that... A distant father figure kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Which, which I guess, like I, it also doesn't make sense to me because it's not like he's away on anything or has like another thing that's weighing on him that like everybody else doesn't other well, emotionally emotionally but emotionally but, distant. But, but also like prior like prior it seems like he's still like emotionally distant he's still distant but it doesn't make sense for like what he's trying to set up maybe or he just mm-hmm. like or he's trying to overcome his distance with this 
communal family. I think that's it. Mm. I think he's trying to overcome his distance with the communal family because we do late in the book get a kind of description um, from from Daniel, I think, of how all of these um, how all of these people met originally, right, and how they came to mm-hmm. be this kind of unit. And you know, he kind of describes how much of a misfit everybody was, and in in various degrees and or to various degrees and in various ways. But like what I got from that description of him kind of telling this narrative of bringing these people together is like he's the weirdest one of them all. Um, and yeah. he was the one from the very beginning who really didn't know and continues to not really know how to interact with people. Um, and so yeah, he takes other, on this sort of character. The other characters almost seem to describe him as a kind of vampire upon them at one point, of where any any of them, though with difficulty, could have found other friends, could have found other, uh, other social groups, could have set their own path for themselves. Yep. Daniel couldn't, mm-hmm. in their view. He had to latch upon them. He had yes. to draw them with him for the hope of the even the imagine the imagined idea of a future that he l- could not have functioned, could not have set a path without seizing upon them and dragging them with him. At least that's the view of Rafe and his bitterness by the end of this tale. Yeah, though Rafe has other. Do we what? Do we agree? And we're drawing from later things in the text, but do we agree with Frank as to his uh, view of Daniel that this is a person with a criminal background that was using this as cover? No. Uh, he, no. <laughs> that's that's just Frank being Frank. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't. He doesn't. He doesn't read as somebody who is has a criminal background. He seems as like deeply broken. Um, yeah. But not criminal. Yeah. I think it comes down to he was essentially the most invested person in this experiment, and when it sort of stopped working out, he didn't know how to live with that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that I think that had uh, Cassie not gone undercover, he would have committed suicide. And I'm sort of surprised that the book didn't end that way. He did. He did well, commit suicide. Yeah, but like, bef- like before the end, like very, like very quickly after, like it was yeah. sure. If if the SWAT team wasn't actively busting in the walls, if he had a time to actually process the downfall of his house of Usher, yeah. Uh, then yeah, I believe that it would have he that he he would have died with the house, effectively died with his dream. So well, uh, uh, should we uh, discuss then the uh, Justin? Yes. Uh, Justin, I feel like is one of the most characterized of the character. Well, Justin and Rafe, I feel like the most characterized of the uh, residents of the house in terms of their emotions, their interactions, and what they want out of this, or what they feel like they're getting out of this. Which is interesting, given that the two of them are very much paired throughout the story, the ways that aren't fully explained until the end. Yeah, I don't know. It's the, I feel like there are descriptions of the characters and little stories about them that just don't feel quite right. Um, mm-hmm. And then just the overall sense that you get. And I feel like Justin's just not quite as fleshed out as Rafe because of Cassie does not interact with him as quite as much. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. She sees him as the weak link, but then does not spend much time actually trying to mine this weak link. Yeah. Partly because, again, she doesn't really, really want to know what the actual things actually happened. But I mean, the main thing we seem to get out of both... Uh, I feel like we almost have to discuss the two of them in the same sentence because they feel like <laughs> two sides of the same coin. 
Um, but they are unquestionably the most emotive of the, res of the residents of this household uh, in different directions of where Justin feels like he's constantly on the verge of an emotional breakdown from the slightest breeze, whereas Rafe is on the verge of just one, a, a bundle of dynamite that you're constantly soaking in kerosene and then just waving in front of an open match in terms of how he goes about his day-to-day -day life. That they have found some measure of stability and basic functioning in this house, but they're the ones that are having the most difficulty with it and the ones that are most likely to break. Yeah, and it seems like really as much as Daniel is the one who is really like relying on this house, like they in a surface level have sort of sunk their hooks into the house and into these relationships and into a certain type of functioning, um, like to be able to go on with this day to day, right? And so when that starts to get shaky, it's not maybe the direct link that we get with someone like Daniel, but there is this sort of like instability that starts things on their on their path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like this is, these are sort of two characters that um, have, uh, I get, I don't, I don't know how you guys want to exactly discuss it, but sort of different sexual connections with other people, essentially not, mostly not mentioned in the book, but mm -hmm. that's like some of the topic of discussion. So clearly they can connect with other people in a way that Daniel can't. Or mm -hmm. doesn't, unless you maybe with Abby, but once with Abby, and maybe potentially with Cassie slash Lexi, if it had gone that route. Yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise with extreme difficulty. Mm -hmm. But yeah, these these two definitely seem to have the potential for relationships, have the potential for a world outside of this. Abby does too, but she's just voluntarily here. But these two are much more uh, tangentially connected to Daniel's dream. Maybe in part just to what they were enduring at the moment that uh, they came across Daniel. Or Justin's having recently... Did he tell his parents that he was gay before he went to college or while he was in college? Was it before or after that he got tied to Whitethorn? I'm trying to remember. I don't um, remember. Yeah, I don't really remember. Yeah. I think it was sort of around that time because I feel like it must have been before he got tied to Whitethorn, but sort of around that time that he sort of got kicked out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Well, and, and the real, at least for me, the real affecting story that we get of Justin later in the book, but I think is telling kind of in this conversation is um, Daniel talking about um, when they first met at like yeah. the first day of like orientation at college. And Justin was just a wreck. I mean, he was an absolute, mm -hmm. absolute disaster. Um, like to the extent that he was on tour and like unable to function um, with the group and sort of, following along and doing all of that and so like that that kind of inability to function in these situations is like really telling of the just nervousness that justin yeah. exhibits a lot of the time which makes it more telling and arresting when he is able to drop that from time to time within the house within this family within this group yeah and you can see what value this has to him that he's just such a, a bundle of nerves that's waiting to just pull itself apart but when he's just sitting comfortably interacting with them in the sitting room just so naturally going about his course you can see that this is just the kind of rare moment of peace that he's found and that it's valuable to him even if he maybe have had a different path and we'd gone that way yeah um and then i guess the other side of it is with with rafe that he feels like the most uh, abby's probably the most but he feels like the most like that could fit in to 
like normal society. Well, he's the only character we see in the story that does apparently have outside social connections. The rest yes. of them just have the house social and just have each other. Oh, Spencer. This is another oh, mentor look, thing. This... Uh, God damn it. <laughs> What, what, okay, what's wrong with social connections? He goes on a He spree. goes to bars. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with social connections, but I feel like referring to, like, serial one-night stands as quote-unquote social connections is, and, and maybe technically correct. And I don't even know if that's an accurate description. That's what we hear them describe very flippantly, but they're trying to dismiss the idea of having any kind of relationship outside the home. We see the moment that he, you know, leaves this unit, he establishes a friend group that they continue to mock from Abby's description, but he's fitting in with others. He's going out with others. He has, you know, social connections. Uh, so I, I don't even, I, they describe him being as, you know, a series of one night stands, but I don't, know, I don't even know if that's necessarily perfectly accurate. Well, I, I will say that perhaps there is something else going on there, but the description of Rafe coming back after his sort of three-day bender... Oh, he's trashed. He's trashed. I mean, you can call those social connections, but, like, I have questions. (laughs) Unhealthy social connections. How about that? (laughs) Although maybe maybe Spencer a little bit like you after one of our New Year's... (laughs) And yet I keep coming back. Yeah, um... Spencer, what do you tell, like, other people about, like, what happens when, you know, you, you leave for, for, like, three to three to five, seven days or whatever and, and just come back, like, worse for wear? You typically, by then, I've had a long plane ride and, like, at least half a day to thoroughly detox <laughs> before I have to interact with other people. Well, so clearly I, we I, need to change how you were dropped off at the airport. <laughs> You, you know, you never check my luggage to see the little IV bag I've got slipped in there to survive the flight home. But, you know. Um, I still have a lot of uh, fireball uh, here for you. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I made it through, a, how many did I make it through? Like 10 over the course of that trip? And that was just far too many. <laughs> I d- still do not know why that exists and who that is appealing to. Uh, it, it's everybody else, Spencer. That's the answer. Um, so, I guess... One of the other things that, that I wanted to touch on before uh, the next episode is um, how do you feel about this relationship? Is this something that, that is interesting to you, foreign? Um, I guess it sort of reminds me of one of our friends that, that had this um, uh, desire, I want to say, that, that we'd sort of all get houses like next to each other on a cul-de-sac. <laughs> There was talk of that, and there was just talk of buying Mangum Dorm, either which kind of fall into the same thing. Yeah, or, or just, like, buying a big house. And it, it's something that we've talked about a surprising amount, um, and we have spent essentially a lot of time in a building together after we were forced to do so, essentially, in, in undergrad. So, um, Sarah, now that you've been thrown in with our lot, um, how do you feel about that? I, I'm an only <laughs> child. <laughs> Um, I'm an only child who does not really appreciate having to spend all of my time around other people. Um, and so this was actually super interesting to me because like the description of this house and these relationships and kind of the romanticization and nostalgia about all of it, like I could totally buy into it and really enjoyed entering into it in a fictional space. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the same time I was also like, oh my God, like how... I would be the person in this situation who spent probably 75% of my time just in my room. Um, (laughs) 
I don't know if they'd let you do that for no, long. No, I know. And so yeah. I don't think I don't think I'm suited to this whole living style. Um, yeah. I guess my my flip side to the coin for that is I 100% get it, except there are and um I mean at least Spencer and and I've spent a lot less time with you Sarah, but like good friends of mine are people that I can be alone with. Like yes. I can mm-hmm. Like, I can be in the same room and just be like, well, I'm going to read a book because I don't want to talk to you guys. And that's okay. And so <laughs> I feel like the it'd be a very, very, very boring book if it were everybody was doing their own thing and not interacting. Yes, but I that, think that's fair. But that might be more like 90% of what it is. And that is much more... Uh, something that i would enjoy and so like the the reality of their world in my head is something that i would like and mm-hmm. i just remember i think it was um we were actually prepping for a a reads episode for um uh the duncan egg and sort of everybody was like off in their own corner essentially we we're all reading the same story to prepare for the episode in in your living room essentially sarah yeah and I don't know, that was, I, I was happy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally take your point, BJ. And I think you're probably, you're probably right. Um, and I like that. I like that in sort of, I, I like that in doses, but like fundamentally, <laughs> I, I know myself. I want my space. And you're more my like things, Picasso. And like, please, we, we can interact in like prescribed periods of time. <laughs> 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 and then yeah. I need you to go away, please. Um, so yeah, that's like I just I know I know this about myself. Mm. Spencer. Well, BJ, I think well, BJ, sorry, I think you both can guess the answer, my answer to that question of where I very voluntarily inserted myself into a White Thorn Manor equivalent of Mangum Dorm for four years, and they were four absolutely lovely, lo- lovely looking back upon nostalgic years of where my room of Mangum Mangum Dorm one hundred six. It theoretically had a lock, but if I ever tried to close that door for more than about six minutes at a time, people would bang on it and demand I stop masturbating. <laughs> and that was just the how that world went for four years, of where there was no private space. Uh, the private moments were brief moments of studying uh, crammed between seven-hour binges of Halo. Uh, it was a moment of where a very... I mean, you, BJ, you met me very early on of when I started at uh, UNC. I was very much a Justin figure, and you know, I've only abandoned a certain degree of that as I've aged, yep. and having that kind of setting of just being surrounded by friends that are all voluntarily wanting to be there, they're all wanting to interact with you, they're all wanting to spend time together, be it just sitting alone studying in the same room, or watching a, an episode of Law & Order, because we only got USA on the damn television, <laughs> um, was a rare kind of delight. It was a rare kind of feeling of comfort in a world that almost seems designed to avoid that for a person like And so, yeah, I look I look upon this kind of world that they're painting and I can fully see how a person can get lost in it because that is a kind of uh, solution to so many problems that I, that I long for. And, and Levi's uh, Daniel. Oh, God, yeah, in so many ways. <laughs> Except maybe without the same degree of invested fatherly elements. Oh, I was just going to... Well, I, I thought for a second you were going without the uh, stabbing, but the, the fatherly <laughs> what, element what, makes a lot more sense. Well, no, and if, if, I'm, if I'm Justin, the fact that Doug was humping the back of my head on a regular basis just it makes him <laughs> rafe by the extension of this in so many ways. 
Yep. So, yeah, we, we can assign characters to Magnum Dorm with respect to this, but I do very much see the appeal of a kind of close-knit friend group like this living together in terms of interacting with each other. And, you know, just I value incredibly the friendships that I, I, I built there, and I'm overjoyed that through the aid of modern technology, we're able to stay friends across the distances. Yep. So, Sarah, how do you feel about being Abby? <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> you, are, you, you are cooking for us very frequently. This fits. Yeah, yeah, I can mother hen you all into... <laughs> now that you no longer you know. have chickens that you have to deal with, yes. like, we can be your... <laughs> My surrogate awkward brood. brood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's fine. Um, I will cook and make drinks and tell you not to... That's... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's fun. It's uh, uh, Peter. Did I ever tell you I actually took the time to say goodbye to my room when I moved out? No. It was. Uh, I was hanging out with Doug. We were about to move out, and I actually asked him to leave for a moment so I could say goodbye. And he patted me on the shoulder with just this moment of absolute understanding and walked out, so I have a few minutes alone to thank the room and wish it goodbye. That's the level of investment I had in the place at that point. So that's why part of the reason this prologue just so resonates with me. It's because I know that kind of connection to a place, that kind of memory that goes back to it and how much the place can serve as its own character. Because by the end of four years, by the end of how much that room was invested in my life, it had a, a creature of its own by that point. I think that's very sweet. Would never, <laughs> would never want to go back and live in that little <laughs> hovel, but you know. Oh, God. I, I, the memories of it have the appeal. There is an appeal to, like, visit and just see, like, what other people have defiled it with. And, like, now that it's no longer... I can't imagine that there's, like, another, essentially, hall. Like, 12, 16 friends that, that are there anymore. And it's just like, you guys have no idea how badly you've <laughs> messed up living in this place. In my day. Yeah, exactly, you know. <laughs> you you damn whippersnappers! You're ruining you're ruining paradise every day. Uh, see, that's the voice that we need. So. Oh uh, God! God, that was actually accent number six. I'm exploring accents I forgot about now that I've had a bit of alcohol. Uh, okay, well we are meandering. We are far afield. Um, do we have other things that we want to talk about in terms of this middle section of the book? Um, let's see. So we covered interpersonal relationships. So we didn't cover the character of the house. And I feel like that's something that, um, we do, I do want to talk about, and I feel like should be talked about in this portion, um, which is the how I feel like Tana French does an impressive capture of the character of places and mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about um cassie's apartment and the uh squad room um but whitethorn really has um in a sense of presence and what it is a solidity and um almost an overbearing quality maybe mm-hmm. of history mm-hmm. and and people to a lesser extent but like very much a character um and so uh, i think at least for me like before we we wrap up this episode i wanted to touch on that well and i think one of the things too and kind of almost by way of transition is that we have not really touched on the idea of how the house as character um not only the idea of home and all of that holds these these people together but like the physical labor of this house is something Mm -hmm. that has really invested all of them right because this house is a fucking dump when they get there i mean it is like molding and falling apart and they're like (laughs) dead creatures and 
wallpaper. Like this well, is all very like Poe-esque. Oh, um, re- re- realistically, they are shortening their lives by living in this home. Yeah. I can't imagine what toxins and mold are accumulating in their lungs from trying to make this place a residence. Yeah, like some of those initial or those descriptions of when they first got in, like they're really, really gross. And um, so the idea of having this shared project where, you know, like one of the things that they do is they work on the house for a, an mm-hmm. hour or so every night and have a project on the weekend and all of that. And so like the idea of the house as a work in progress um, is something that really binds them to it in a way that like if they had been given this house, move in ready, I don't think they would have the same relationships with each other or to the house itself. Yeah. And Very true. I 100% agree with that. Um, the condo that I bought and thankfully finally sold in Champaign um, was a new construction. And like it had almost no character. Um, and I think that of most, pretty much almost any place that I've been recently, Sarah, your old house had a lot of ca- the most character. Um, my um, old house was like Whitethorn in more ways than I would yeah. like to think about right now. <laughs> um, and so, like, I think that there's there there's age with it. Um, I also I find it interesting that the shared experience of renovation mm-hmm. brought them together because um, it reminds me that when I was trying to sell my place and get it ready for showing, uh, the real estate agent was recommending a couple. of you know, straightforward things for me to do. And uh, my girlfriend was very um, skeptical that I could functionally do these things. Um, and I, I re- informed her that, like, yes, I could very much do these things. I just hate it with a passion. And that's why I don't do, don't do a lot of these things for the most part. And we did have a shared experience of you know doing some work on a house and um while it didn't drive us apart i wouldn't say that it really brought us together and i think that's partially the character of the house and like my character um spencer i cannot imagine you having like a working on a property shared experience that was like a you know those were some of them of my life um or, or anything like that, I can, I, I, I just don't imagine that for you at all. I, I would have to be drinking a lot of the Kool-Aid for that to work. <laughs> I mean, I, I, can, I can imagine getting invested enough in a friend group to be talked into that, but it would be contrary to nature. I would have to be thoroughly into the cult mentality for that to be the norm of the day-to-day of, okay, all right, and on this day, we're going to clear out the trash and do the baseboards around the entire house. Which I think is super funny because... Uh, before this episode started, we were talking about how you were very happy to help fold paper for something of Sarah's. Like, I, I, I'm forgetting what exactly what it is now, because uh, I wasn't there and I didn't have to fold the papers. But <laughs> to be fair, Spencer did not have to fold the papers either, but Spencer did fold the papers. And in that particular time, that particular mindset, I was really <laughs> enjoying folding papers. I was invested in what I was doing and just... The hours flew by. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like the other side of it is there's, like, stuff to do that that I feel like is more our pace of thing. Um, Sure. But 
but I do understand the investment of shared projects and and I feel like the hmm. best example for the two of us is, is achievements in video games where <laughs> completely useless like we didn't get anything worth it out of it but we spent hilarious amount of amounts of time on it and mm-hmm. um, Sarah I feel like you you also maybe fall more to the side of not enjoying the like renovation side of projects but but I I am very confident in the, you enjoy working on projects. I don't know about with other people. I, yeah, I don't on projects with other people. I'm coming <laughs> off as a real misanthrope in this whole episode. <laughs> I, I like doing renovation pro- projects. I, well, the ones that I'm sort of capable of. It, uh, the extent of the projects that they are doing themselves in this novel is interesting. Like, where are they renting floor sanders from and doing that? But anyway... Um, one of the things I actually really, really like <laughs> to do point. is um, to paint houses. And like, that's my, oh. that that is a sort of zen place for me. But I also don't really like help with it um, because other people do it or... don't do it right. Yeah. 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 I feel like we need to do get it. you like an egg timer, like a Sarah's willing to be social for this amount of time <laughs> that dings. And then we're like, all right, bye, Sarah. <laughs> Actually, that would solve a You've lot done? of my sort of social problems in the world. <laughs> yeah. If we were Here's just Here's your clear. necessary quota. <laughs> it's the squishy in-between time um, when I am over it and people have not yet realized that I am over it. <laughs> it proves a real problem for me. <laughs> well, in terms of other things, this house represents... Uh, I, I love the representation of a shared enterprise. I think that's very much what draws them together. I think that's a key part of Daniel's plan. The house also seems to represent almost like a willful defiance of where it is purposefully old, it's purposefully remote, it is purposefully separate from the beaten path of society. It is meant to be as actively different from the life they otherwise would lead if they just accepted what society wanted to put upon them. I think that's that is certainly true. And then we have um, the other side of that as well, which is what the house represents to the village. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, is this sort of, like, colonial... Uh, colonial is, I guess, the wrong word. Um, no, no, that's the word they use. I, yeah, I guess it is. But this, uh, this sort of system of oppression. And now you have yeah. this, like, group of young wh- whippersnappers coming in and sort of, like, larking about and not doing... Like, yes, they're doing the hard renovation work, although that's not really seen by the town. But, like, what they're doing up at this house and how they're living and how they're treating the village, like, all of that becomes this, like, these these huge points of contention um and strife mm-hmm. and um anxiety kind of throughout this yeah. town manor dynamic they say these outsider kids who have no understanding or real care for the history of this and the tortured tortured aspect of the history this house represents and that they're just going about keeping it persist and allowing it to persist where it instead could be the opportunity for rejuvenation of this entire community mm-hmm. but do we want to discuss the troubles or just leave that described vaguely? Because I don't know if we can discuss the troubles in, like, five minutes without being really, really insulting. Yeah. I like, I also feel like it doesn't really have impact on anything other than being a red herring. Yeah. yeah. It is. That's what it's there for. And it's just the sort of milieu that we're in, but, like, the plot still works without even really having that milieu. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's leave that. I think. Yeah. That sounds complicated for tonight. <laughs> yeah. So I, I also just want to say that County Wicklow is, is a real place and is like 10 miles south of Dublin. Mm-hmm. I felt like I it should... It is that close. So I feel like 
this is a super truism and and i haven't been to to uk ireland scotland any of those places but in europe 10 miles is further and it you know the the 100 miles is is incredibly far versus 100 years being a long time ago mm-hmm. um, and it that is mm-hmm. it's a truism that is overly used but it is yeah yeah we are a society built around a lot more space and so our concept of distance in the states is a uh, quite different from the from across the pond yeah um but but i i, I was like huh I, I wonder if this is a real place because it it feels real enough and it's essentially like a real county but not not a real town mm-hmm. is what it looks like um yeah, I feel like we've hit. Sarah, did you have uh, anything else that, that you wanted to hit, or is your uh, egg timer up? My egg timer's up. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a good point to wrap up because we've we've handled the interactions, we've handled the relationships, we've handled the characters, and now we kind of really just need to wrap up the mystery. Come next week. Yep. Cool. So we get to do plot next week. Yeah. The, the <laughs> you know five minutes of plot that there is, and and the denouement, and then we can like you know look in on the awful thing that is uh, them. Sam and, and Cassie getting engaged. Um, I feel yeah, like that so, will take up the bulk of our conversation. Yeah. That's going to be a character study in its own right. Um, so thanks again for, for joining us for, for Mangum Reads. Uh, you can find all of the Mangum Talks content on mangumtalks.com uh, or wherever you get podcasts. There is Mangum Talks TV where Spencer and Lee are uh, talking about nuclear reactors and um, how amusing it is that everybody's going to die of radiation sickness when they're reviewing uh, Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. There is Whiskey on the Weekends, which hopefully will be on a slightly more regular schedule. Um, we just recorded an episode this past weekend, and we have very concrete plans to do so on a somewhat regular basis. Um, we also sometimes have Mangum Laughs, where Lee and I tell you not to watch a bunch of stand-up comedy because it's terrible. And supposedly there is a more in-depth basketball discussion other than what Spencer and I begrudgingly put up with on Whiskey on the Weekends with Mangum Hoops, um, which might make a return a little bit faster than Michael Jordan when he retired for the first time. Oh, good reference. Uh, I, do, I do what I can. Um, and hopefully we'll have uh, some more uh, special content in the under the umbrella of Mangum Reads coming soon. Um, and look for that uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, uh, please let us know. Uh, there is a contact us button in, I believe, the top right hand of the Mangum.com mangumtalks.com website and uh, somebody and most likely me will read all of that and uh, maybe bring it on to one of our episodes Uh, is there anything else guys I think that's it you've covered it all right well uh, thanks for joining us again for this uh, mummer's farce of an evening (laughs) mightily enjoyable till tomorrow everybody (laughs) oh my god all right (laughs) (laughs) 